Good morning. My name is Mark Ritchie. I sit by the windows this service. Uh, welcome. Uh, it's my honor to introduce our speaker this morning. Dr. Christopher Yuan is a professor at Moody Bible Institute, and uh, he speaks uh, th- around the world on faith and sexuality, speaks at conferences and, and churches and, and college campuses all around. And uh, he, uh, uh, well, he earned his doctorate, as he mentioned, or in the first service at Bethel Seminary, and we're congratulating him for that. He also graduated from Moody Bible in 2005, and then in 2007 he, he uh, uh, finished his biblical exegesis as a master at Wheaton Grad School. Uh, Christopher's parents, Dr. Leon Yuan and Angela Yuan, are here with us as well, and you're going to enjoy and be challenged and moved by their story and testimony. You can imagine how parents would feel regarding a prodigal son who not only uh, embraced a lifestyle of homosexuality, but also entered into the dark world of the drug culture. But God, I say again, but God, revealed his grace to them and power to, to rely on God to change the unchangeable. Uh, Christopher, Christopher and uh, his mom, Angela, have written a book called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son Journey to God and Broken Mother's Search for Hope. And it is available in the uh, resource table in the commons in the foyer. So you'll want to avail yourself to that. Let's give a warm, liquid welcome to Dr. Christopher Yuan and his parents. America, where many roads are streets, and streets are lined with gold. Well, at least that's what I perceived when I first passed through Ellis Island of New York City on October 30th, 1964. I quickly realized how wrong I was the first night I stayed at my friend's rundown apartment in the slum of Harlem. And even more surprising was the day after. October 31st, when little people wearing masks, <laughs> ring doorbells, and said, trick or treat. I said to myself, what have I got myself into? Angela, my college sweetheart, came a few months later and we married the next year. I also assumed, just because we were in love, we would simply live happily ever after. How naive I was. (laughs) We were not Christian then. And being a only son raised in a traditional Chinese family, I thought being loyal to my parents was the most important. Therefore, I never emotionally left my parents and cleaved to Angela. I tried to please both sides, but end up pleased no one. And um, Angela fell in love because I was not fully devoted to her. 
My father was well liked but very passive at home, so I never learned how to be a loving husband. And without Jesus Christ, I didn't have the biblical principle how to love sacrificially. So things progressive, worse and worse. And after years of unresolved issues and self-centered living, our marriage was a disaster. So with encouragement from both of our sons, we began the paperwork for a divorce after 28 years of marriage. I never imagined that I would get a divorce. Since I was a little girl, I dream of belonging to a loving and caring family. While dating in college, Leon treated me like a princess. But my parents disapproved of our dating, and I refused to end our relationship. So my mom slapped my face for the first time in my life. However, I still consider our love to be true and everlasting. As soon as I finished college, I came to the U.S. for graduate school, but I decided to give up my full scholarship to get married instead. And I also found a full-time job so Leon can concentrate on getting his Ph.D. So my parents were furious. Leon and I faced tremendous pressure and expectations from our parents on both sides, especially since Leon was the only son so I felt as if he had become a totally different person, and I cried through many sleepless nights. For years, I endured this for the sake of our two young sons. Leon was laid off from his first job and went back to school again. So I worked the night shift, providing the only source of income until Leon complete both his Ph.D. and doctorate in dentistry. Then we devote our energy to build a thriving dental clinic. On the outside, we had all. A new house in a comfortable suburb of Chicago, two luxury cars, a husband with two doctorates, and both son in dental school. But I was depressed, lonely, miserable, and felt like a total failure. So my dream of becoming, of belonging to a loving and caring family became more and more distant as the years went by. So finally, we began the paperwork for a divorce. I didn't think things would get any worse. I was wrong. In the same year, on May, May 15th, 1993, our son Christopher came home after his first year at University of Louisville School of Dentistry. He made an announcement, I am gay. Since our marriage relationship was hopeless, I did not work as a team with my wife to face this enormous challenge. Not only did I not to comfort her, but I also accused her to making our son gay. Christopher's declaration affirmed my belief that we should all go our separate ways. Let him be. 
because there's nothing I can do about it. Besides, isn't it more important to be happy? But my wife responded quite differently. You will never think that three simple words, I am gay, could cause so much pain. I actually thought I could threaten Christopher with an automaton to choose the family or choose homosexuality. But Christopher already bought into the lie that he couldn't change, that he was born gay. So he said, if you cannot accept me, I have no other choice but to leave. Without any hesitation, Christopher picked up his bags and left. Nothing can describe how I felt at that moment. It was worse than receiving Christopher's death. He could have cut me with a knife, and it would have hurt less. I fell to the floor in shock and anguish. My body was numb and as cold as ice. Without any relatives, nor a church family, I had no one to turn to. In desperation, I went to the phone book and radio, hoping to find help, but there was none. In my mind, not only had my my husband refused to stand by me, but also Christopher, who was closest to me and my last ray of hope had also betrayed me. I was at the end of my robe as my world fell apart around me. I had no more reason to live. So I determined to do the unthinkable. I was going to end my life. Even though I was not a Christian at that time, I felt the need to meet with the minister who gave me a pamphlet on homosexuality. Then I left home, not telling Leon where I was going or what I was doing. I bought a one-way Amtrak ticket to Louisville, where I planned to say goodbye to Christopher for the last time before ending it all. With only my purse and a pamphlet from the minister, I bought on the train to Louisville, thinking that death was the only answer to all my problems. Never being much of a reader, on the train, I began to read the pamphlet, which explained the plan of salvation, that all of us are sinners, yet God loves us in spite of our sin. God opened the eyes of my heart. Then I realized that just as God loves me, I could love Christopher in spite of him living as a gay man. I then looked out the window and marveled at the beauty of nature. The fields extend in every direction and seem to have no end. I had been an atheist all my life. So for the very first time, I noticed the wonders of creation. So at that moment, I realized that there must be a God. One of my favorite verses today is Romans one twenty. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Even though everything around me proclaimed the works of God, 
I had been suppressed the truth of God for 51 years. I was without excuse. There is a God. I cannot remember if anyone else was on the train with me, but it seemed as if I was there all alone. I lost sense of time as I sat there in perfect peace. Then I heard a still, small voice. You belong to me. All my life, I longed to belong to somebody. First, my parents. Then, my husband. Finally, my children. But God, who knew my deepest need, told me I belong to him. So those four words from God were like a healing palm to my shattered heart. Although I was not seeking God, I was found by my loving creator. After arriving in Louisville, I called a number on the back of the pamphlet and was connected to a Christian lady who began to disciple me. For six weeks, I immersed myself into the Bible and felt as if I couldn't soak up enough. I had never heard of a Bible bookstore. So when I was brought to one, I was like a little kid in a candy store. Along with the Bible, I read Christian book after Christian book. From morning to night, I rent an extended stay apartment. So my time in Louisville was like a private retreat. You see, I went to Louisville expecting to end my life. In reality, I did. Another one of my favorite verses today is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. After six weeks, I got a phone call from the lady who was discipling Angela. She was very, very excited and told me, your wife has surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. She has been saved. I was not very pleased. And I told her, this is not a good news. This is my worst nightmare because from now on, she has got on her side. <laughs> but what I realized and observed that her transformation was not a Sunday-only change, but affected every day of the week. She spent hours every day in her prayer closet reading her Bible and interceding for Christopher. Her faith was vibrant and alive. What she had was not religion, but an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Little did I know God was also work on me. I started going to church with her, and a friend of ours invited us to a Bible study called BSF, where we grow deeper into the understanding of and love for God and his word. It was while studying the Bible that God removed my blender from my eye. I also give myself to Jesus Christ. And uh, God became the glue that kept our marriage together by drawing both of us closer to himself. This was God's way of preparing both of us for the difficult years I had, as Christopher had a deeper and deeper 
into the world of homosexuality. For my childhood years, I did what most Chinese American kids did. Obey your parents, do well in school, and of course, practice piano. <laughs> See, I didn't fit in with the other American boys. I mean, I looked different, I acted different, and I had different interests. God had given me the gifts of music, of sensitivity. And Satan cannot take away those God-given gifts, but he can twist the perception of them. And from young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as being effeminate. The first time I remember having these attractions was when I was nine years old, after I came across pornography at a friend's house at nine. And at that young age, I was confused and afraid of those feelings. Without any parental guidance on sexuality, those magazines gave me a distorted view of sex, and they soon became my master. Unfortunately, pornography has become the master of many youth and adults, men and women. Did you know that the pornography industry is a multi-billion dollar industry? Many of us do not know how easily accessible it is and do little or nothing to protect ourselves and our families from it. Well, there's a few other industries that are also, also multi-billion dollar industries. Take the major television networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC. Their combined annual revenue is $6.2 billion dollars. The combined annual revenue of the major league sports, hockey, baseball, basketball, football, is $12 billion. But if we were to add up these two industries, they would pale in comparison to the annual revenue of the pornography industry. $57 billion. We're in an all-out war with the pornography industry, and to be honest, we're losing miserably. Even scarier, statistics say 9 out of 10 children aged 8 to 16 have already viewed pornography on the internet, often when simply doing their homework. Even scarier, one out of five children aged 10 to 17 have received a solicitation over the internet by a sexual predator. And the majority of those times, the children had no idea and didn't think anything was wrong. So what can be done? I hope this is alarming to you. Parents, I hope this is alarming to you. Grandparents, I hope this is alarming. What can be done? My parents and I, we advocate something we call having double internet protection. Having an internet filter, which is great, but just having an internet filter alone isn't enough. Having an accountability program as well that logs in when questionable sites are viewed. The two programs that my parents and I use on our computers can be found at these two websites. One is caninewebprotections.com. The other one is x3watch.com. So, You guys can feel free, get out your pen and paper, don't be shy. Grandparents, if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's okay. Still write this down because I I would strongly encourage you, make sure that you write these down and have your children put it on your grandchildren's computer. As a matter of fact, this isn't just for children, this is for adults. I challenge you men, put this on your computer and then let your wife put the the password on the, the, the filter. Because if garbage goes in garbage is going to come out. We have to be really proactive in our own sexual purity and also uh, protecting our children from this. I also think we have to talk openly and frankly with our children about sex and sexuality. In our culture today, they are teaching our children younger and younger and younger, even at kindergarten, about sex and sexuality. So to think that you can wait till 16 to talk to your children about birds and the bees is not being very realistic. And besides, wouldn't it be wonderful if our children first heard about sex and sexuality 
at home in the context of um, uh, the Bible and Christianity instead of them hearing it in the playground or in public school or television. So uh, let's be proactive talking about sex and sexuality. There's some good resources that are paid for uh, that combine both of these together, the filter and accountability program. Covenant Eyes is a good one. Net Nanny is another one. Um, Safe Eyes is some good ones. But let us not be behind the eight ball in talking about this. So unfortunately for me, with pornography fueling my same-sex attractions, I had my first encounter when I was 16 years old. But I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. In my early 20s, I started secretly going out to the gay clubs in Chicago. And then when I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where I started dental school, I no longer kept a secret, and I came out of the closet. I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs, and I went from relationship to relationship, seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found temporarily, but it only left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs, but without much money as a dental student, I supported my habit by selling drugs, and I sold to friends, classmates, and even a professor. See, I actually thought, actually thought that I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was to receive my doctorate, the administration expelled me. So my parents flew down from Chicago to Louisville, Kentucky. And I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. My dad's a dentist. He knew the dean really well. And all they needed to do was to threaten a lawsuit and I'd stay in school for the next three months and graduate. And isn't that what any good Chinese parent should do anyway? <laughs> well, to my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mother looked at the dean and said, actually, it's not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And they said that they're going to support whatever decision the school made. Well, can I just tell you, I was not very happy about that decision. (laughs) They were not on my side. They were on the school side. So I moved further away from them, further away from Chicago, to the bright lights and big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community. I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Because in my world, I had become God. Leon and I had no idea that Christopher was doing drugs. But we knew his biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So I sent him Christian cards several times a week. And I filled them with encouraging words, scripture, and hymns. At the bottom of each card, I sign, Love you forever, Mom. But little did I know he never read them and simply tossed them into the garbage. I call him frequently, but I always got his voicemail. Then I would leave messages, but he never called me back. Once he even threatened 
that if I ever bother God, we will never see him again. Leon and I thought Christopher might come home for the holidays if we bought him a plane ticket. So on Christmas Eve, I went to O'Hare Airport to pick him up. It was before 9-11. We could still go to the gate to meet our guests. I stood there peering down the jet bridge in anticipation for Christopher. As the arriving passengers came into view, my heart leapt with excitement, but then dropped in disappointment when I realized it was not Christopher. One by one, I watched the travelers reunite into the arms of their loved ones where I stood there all alone. When the last person came up the plane, then I knew Christopher was not on that flight. So I drove home and came back several hours later for the next flight, but only repeat what had happened hours before. Our son, Christopher, was now returning. In tears, I drove back home alone. Since Christopher would not come to us, we went to him. We flew to Atlanta, but on the second day, he kicked us out, not even allow us to call our friend to pick us up. Before leaving, I want left with him something that I precious. That was my very first Bible. Not surprisingly, he refused, but I left on his countertop anyway and walked out the door. As soon as I walked the door, we found out later they took my Bible and threw it into the trash. It was more than obvious that he was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. And we, we realized that it's going to take a God-sized miracle to turn things around. So my wife began to pray a very bold and very dangerous prayer. Lord, do whatever it takes to bring this to bring this prodigal son to you. And as hopeless as things were, we committed not to focus on the hopelessness, but on the promises of God. Along with over a hundred prayer warriors from our own church and from the Bible study fellowship group. We cry out to God for Christopher. In her desperation, Angela fasted every Monday for eight years. And once fasted 39 days for Christopher. Every morning, she will literally spend hours in her prayer closet on her knees, reading the Bible interceding for Christopher and praying for herself and for me. She wrote down many of her prayers, and following is one of those prayers. I will stand in the gap for Christopher. I will stand until the victory is won, until Christopher's heart changes. I will stand in the gap every day, and there... I will fervently pray. And Lord, just one favor 
don't let me waver. If things get quite rough, which they may, I will never give up on that son, nor will you. Though the enemy seeks to destroy, I will not quit as I intercede. Though it may take years, I give you my fears and tears, as I trust every moment I plead. I prayed those prayers for eight years, and seemed that God was not answering them. But during those years, God did answer my prayers, just not in the way I expected. His answer for me was, "Wait, be still." And know that I am God. As I looking back upon those years when I prayed for change, God did bring change. The change was not yet in Christopher, but the change was in me and my husband. What God intended for that time was that we will be changed, that we will be transformed, that we will be trophies of God's mercy. As what Chambers said, we are not here to prove God answers prayer. We are here to be living monuments of God's grace. As we live out those years of waiting, we learn to walk and live as monuments of His grace, as God drew us to Himself each and every day. Often, answer to prayer doesn't come quickly. And this definitely was not an exception, but my parents were unwavering in their faithfulness to intercede on my behalf. Like the persistent widow, my mother bombarded heaven with her prayers. She knew that it would take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the Father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came one day with a bang on my door. I opened up my door, and on my front doorstep were twelve federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German Shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs—not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs—and I was charged with the street value equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing ten years to life in federal prison. I'd started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Lana City Detention Center. So I tried calling all my friends. You know those type of friends that say, "Whenever you need something, just give me a call." Those friends that actually get me more into trouble than they're good for me. Well, what I didn't realize was I had a praying mama at home. Watch out! And she knew as long as I had those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. And remember, she loves bold prayers. Well, she prayed specifically years before that somehow, some way, God would cause all of my friends to desert me. And on that day, not one friend answered my collect call. So, you mothers, beware of your prayers; they're going to come true. <laughs> so, I was down to the bottom of the list. Home, and I didn't want to make that phone call, as I imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But actually, my mother's first words were, "Son." 
Are you okay? No condemnation. No berating words. Just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2 verse 4. That it's God's kindness. That leads us to repentance. It's not God's anger. It's not God's judgment. But it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his irresistible grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not. Because I hadn't called home in years, and she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So as she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears... She knew she had to do just as that good old hymn says. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down. She reached out next to the phone was a calculator and she tore a little piece of the adding machine tape off the calculator And she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is in a safe place compared to before. And he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list of blessings and taping more pieces of adding machine tape to it. And today this list of blessings is longer and taller and she is. Both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block. I was trying to say to myself, I, I, I want to stay as far away from those really bad people, those criminals. <laughs> and I passed by this garbage can. You might not know this, but they don't take the trash out every day in jail. So the garbage was overflowing out of the can. It was practically a heap of garbage. And I looked at this garbage and I thought to myself, my life right now is so much like this, trash. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My father has two doctorates. I was three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made. And now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. And with my head down, I was about to pass by that garbage can, but something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell, and I opened up that good book. And for the first time, I read through the entire Gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I did not think that this was the answer to my problems. Honestly, I thought, I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands and I better pass it somehow. But as some of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper. But what we have in our Bibles, beloved, is the very breath of God. And it is living 
and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to go through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and it wasn't a pretty sight, and I thought things couldn't get any worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. They handcuffed me, chained my hands around my waist. They shackled my feet together. I shuffled into the nurse's office. She shut the door behind me, sat me down, and I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words, and she couldn't even give me eye contact. So she resigned to writing something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down at this piece of paper, and I saw three letters... And a symbol. It read H I V positive. A few days before Christmas, I received Christopher's phone call from jail. The noise in the background could not cover up his sad and hopeless words. Mom, I am H I V positive. His sullen and weak voice trailed off as my body went limp. I felt dizzy, and the world around me seemed to stop. Ever since Christopher told us he was gay, I had lived with this constant fear that Christopher might one day contract this deadly virus. My worst nightmare was now a reality. Christopher was sentenced to six years in federal prison, but news of his HIV status was like a death sentence, a verdict I could not accept. Hang up the phone, the pains of grief torn at my broken heart like a knife. Aimlessly, I stumbled up the step. My legs lost their Strength with one arm against the wall, I dragged my heavy body into my prayer closet. Under the cross, I fell to my knees and stinging tears blurred my eyes. This affliction was more than I could bear. In the silence of my sorrow, a melody began to play in my heart. The soft and sweet streams of a hymn fill my ears and repeat over and over. It is well. It is well with my soul. When peace like a Attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say. So with my 
few days after receiving that devastating news, I was lying in my bed, and I noticed in the metal bunk above me, there was graffiti, profanity, gang symbols, and, but someone had written something in the corner, and it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans that I have. For you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, God was using the words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation to tell me that regardless of who I was and what I had done in the past, he still, he still had a plan for me. I had no idea where this plan was going to take me, but God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. I wish I could tell you I got down on my knees, said a sinner's prayer, and everything was just perfect after that. I didn't have any problems. That's far from the truth. God was convicting my dependencies. The most obvious was drugs, But within a few months, God delivered me from that addiction. But the last thing that I was holding on to was my sexuality. As I was reading the Bible, it was so clear to me that God loved me unconditionally. And I also came across the passage in the Bible that seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was, my sexuality. So I went to a prison chaplain. And I asked him his opinion on this issue. And to my surprise, this prison chaplain actually told me that the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. And he gave me a book explaining that view. So with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And let me tell you, from a purely human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming, to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God, His Word, and His unmistakable condemnations against homosexual sex. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain. So... I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. (laughs) I went cover to cover. I thought, okay, if there's question whether these passages condemn it, 
which, by the way, after 10 years of studying in Bible college and in seminary in Hebrew and Greek, there is no question. But for argument's sake, let's say there's a question. Let's see if the rest of the Bible, if there's any other passage that would bless a monogamous gay relationship. I went cover to cover several times. I couldn't find any. So I was at a turning point, and a decision had to be made. Either abandon God and His Word and live as a gay man and pursue a monogamous gay relationship by allowing my feelings to dictate my sexuality to control who I was and how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous gay relationship by liberating myself from my sexuality and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I chose God. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I realized a few things. First of all, it's possible. Second, I'm not going to go crazy, regardless of what Freud says. Third, third, I realized that my sexuality should not be the core of who I was. See, I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally, and then I added, so therefore, He doesn't want me to change. But now after reading the Bible, which is a good thing, reading the Bible, I realize that actually unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Let me say that again because this is important. Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. See, my identity should never be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in what I feel or my attractions. My identity isn't gay, homosexual, or even, get this, get this, or even heterosexual for that matter. Because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy, for I am holy. Before, I thought that to please this God of the Bible, this Christian God, I had to become straight. But even people who have heterosexual feelings still struggle with sin. So the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of anything is holiness. God never said, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. But neither did he say, be homosexual, for I'm homosexual. That's not the goal, but holiness is the goal. And so God was telling me, don't focus upon what you feel. Don't focus upon your temptations or your desires, but rather focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity. Because change, it's not the absence of struggles. Does God ever promise you that come to Jesus and you won't struggle with sin? You won't be tempted, you won't have any problems. No, but change is the freedom to choose holiness in the midst of our struggles. Change is not the absence of struggles, but change is the freedom to choose holiness In the midst of our struggles. Because the ultimate issue is not what I'm struggling with. It's not my temptations, my desires, my feelings. But the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God. In total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal 
his plan for my life. And he called me to full-time ministry while I was in prison. And I realized that it didn't matter where I was, whether in prison or out of prison, because my calling on life would remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle. And he shortened my sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew if I was going to continue on in ministry after prison, I'd better learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called them, collected my parents, told them, I think God's calling me to ministry, I want to go to Bible college, and I asked them to mail me an application to the only Bible college I had ever heard of at that time, which happens to be in our hometown, Chicago, called Moody Bible Institute. But then there was silence on the other line, because I think they both dropped their phones. They mailed the application into me to prison. I was so excited when I got it. I ripped it open, began filling out the questions, writing my essays, until I got to the end of the application where they asked me for references. Not any reference, but specifically people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. The only people I knew were people in prison, so I had some slim pickings. But I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references to Moody. So the greatest miracle of this whole story is that Moody actually accepted me. I was released from prison in July of 2001. I started the very next month in August of 2001. Uh, so imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> I graduated from Moody in 2005, went on to get my Master's of Arts in Biblical Exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School. I just received my Doctorate of Ministry this past May from Bethel Seminary in St. Paul, Minneapolis. And um, I had the honor as well of co-authoring a book with my mother, with my mother called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. She wrote chapter 1. I wrote chapter 2, she wrote chapter 3, she wrote chapter 4. So actually they're alternating narratives, uh, interwoven chapters. We were intentional about writing it from our own two perspectives. Because at the beginning of the book, same situation, two totally different perspectives. And God in his mercy and grace and power brought us all back together. Our book is even used as a textbook in Christian high schools. Uh, they're, they're using it to communicate biblical sexuality because honestly, there are, there's so many of these resources talking about sexuality from a secular, non-Christian perspective. And yet we have so few talking about what biblical sexuality that's, that's grounded in God's word and not talking about, you know, this, this other change that's adding to, to, to God's word, but about change that's grounded in what sanctification really looks like. So schools are using that, which is something we never thought about. We have some available outside as well. And then God has given us back the years that the locusts have taken away, where my parents and I are traveling around the nation, around the world, talking about God's grace and truth on sexuality. And then as if that wasn't enough, God did something else. God, God has a sense of humor. How many of you guys can agree with me God has a sense of humor? <laughs> so now God has brought me back full circle, back to Moody, where I'm teaching in the Bible department. So I went from prisoner to professor. How about that for a resume? <laughs> but God has done far more abundantly, far more abundantly beyond all that we have asked or thought. Our lives, most of which were far, far apart from Christ. I look back and I see that I made some really bad decisions, a lot of bad decisions. 
One of those with some big consequences, one of those being HIV positive. But you know, actually, I'm no different than any of you. All of our days are numbered. All of our days are numbered. God has but given us one life here on this earth. And those 70, 80 years might seem like they're a long time. In light of eternity, it's a drop in the bucket. And you know, it took getting HIV for me to realize a profound truth. That as a child of God, I must live with a sense of urgency. You know... This is Sunday, and we're at church. But I realize that not everyone comes who comes to church is a Christian. I know that just because you come to church doesn't mean that you follow Jesus. And you might have been coming all your life and been hearing gospel truths preached by the pastor. But maybe you've been waiting for something to happen. Waiting and waiting. But the reality is, actually, you're not the one that's waiting. But our Heavenly Father is the one that is waiting. And He's waiting with open arms. Our days are numbered. Don't wait another day to make that choice to follow Jesus. There are prayer warriors here. There are ways to connect with the, the church. There's even an anonymous email if you have a question But our days are numbered. And not only has God called us to know Jesus, but I know we are, we are created not just to know Jesus and get through life, but for those of us who know Jesus, we are called to be great Christians. Not good Christians who kind of just settle for mediocrity, kind of go day by day and, and good people in the eyes of man, but honestly doing little for the kingdom of heaven. We're all created to live with a sense of urgency and to be great, not in people's eyes, saying, oh, look at how great I am, but great in the eyes of God, making a difference one life at a time and being the least of these. You know, it took a handful of simple women and men who changed the course of history forever. Do you want to simply be a part of history or do you want to create history for the glory of God? Because all of us will one day, whether you're ready or not, stand before our God, our Creator. And my hope is that He will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. God, we praise You. We thank You that You have loved us before we have loved you. Thank you, Lord God, that in all things, in all things, you are faithful. And Father, we repent of settling for mediocrity. We repent of just settling for ways of the world and just going day to day and not really having any purpose to our lives. But you have given us one purpose, and that is to give glory to you. 
Lord, we know that life brings its difficulties. It's not if, but when. And Lord, we know that you have given us peace that's not dependent upon our situations, but peace that's dependent upon the finished work on the cross of Calvary. Lord, help us to rely on you each and every day. Help us, Lord God, to live with a sense of urgency. God, we love you, we praise you, and we ask this in the powerful, matchless name of Jesus, the Messiah. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen.